This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links and for becoming patrons at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 338, we're going to visit Exandria as we review the Explorer's Guide to the Wild Mount. Uh, we have a stalwart team of reviewers joining us from the Tome Show family in this episode. First up, we have our junior editor. Uh, he valiantly picks up most of the editing chores that Sam doesn't take on. He's a, he's a trombonist extraordinaire, I assume. I haven't actually heard him play. Uh, it's Aaron Good. <laughs> Crown Scared reporting for duty, Captain. There you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, also joining us from the Tome Show family, we have our social media manager and guy who really should probably just have his own show on the Tome Show. Uh, he also writes for <laughs> Fat Goblin Games and has some fantastic updates to the Aurora, Aurora's Whole Realms Guide catalogs on DM's Guild. It's Ishmael Alvarez. Great to be here as usual. And lastly, but not leastly, we have our resident historian, our ambassador from Tribality, the co-author of a recently named bestseller on Drive-Thru RPG, a book called The Seas of Vidari, and everybody should go check it out. It's Brandis Stoddard. Hey, everybody. That was really, like, low-key. <laughs> Everybody's so chill tonight. And the Tom Show News. And oh, and, show and, and Tom Show News, and Edition and Wars. And Edition Wars, right? <laughs> so in this episode, we're going to be discussing the Explorer's Guide to Wild Mount, which I want to keep calling Wildemont, and I'm probably going to do it, so I'm very sorry in advance. <laughs> A setting book published by Wizards of the Coast in partnership with Critical Role, the extremely popular streamed game. This is the second continent detailed in the world of Exandria and is the primary location of the second campaign they've played. Before we dive further, I want to thank all of our listeners who support the show. You can do so very easily. You can either go shopping at DMs Guild or Amazon, just like you normally would, but get there through the links at thetomeshow.com and we get a small percentage. Uh, or you can support us directly at Patreon by going to patreon.com slash thetomeshow, just like patrons Leonard Pelche, Jill Sanders, Doug Palmer, and Merrick Blackman. Uh, who are amongst the family of supporters there who um, who toss us a few uh, coppers that helps me pay the bills that keeps the show going. So we're talking about the Explorer's Guide to Wild Mountain. I want to start off, as we always do, really quick uh, with the, the disclosure. Uh, who besides myself is working from a review copy? I'm using uh the... The one available to me through D&D Beyond. Okay. So, which you're getting as a function of, of your being a reviewer. And, uh, Brandis, you raised your hand, but the people listening to the podcast can't see that. So, <laughs> Right, yeah. Uh, I am also working from a uh, review copy. Um, I receive uh, review copies uh, for tribality's sake uh, from Wizards. Right. And I got a review copy from Wizards um, that I'm holding up for those people that are watching the stream at, what are we, twitch.tv slash tome show. Uh, and I also, I, I'm holding up the physical copy that I got from Wizards, but I actually think I read like 98% of it on D&D Beyond as well. Um, it's just, I always have 
my device with me, so it's just easier to have handy, and I read from there more often. So, uh, which isn't always ideal. I really like that I can do that on D and D Beyond. I wish it would remember where I left off easier, and I wish I could like highlight things. Um, but you know, someday, I think we'll get there. I have a really hard time reviewing from an electronic copy because I constantly changing tabs or whatever to to review to read then compose read then compose uh, mm-hmm. drives me crazy. Um, so I'm really glad to have a, a hard copy uh, for when I wrote my tribality review. Right, awesome. And you did write a, uh, an extensive, fairly extensive tribality review. And I know you you must be a fast reader because you usually get those reviews out pretty quick after the the review products come out. So. Yeah, uh, I, I composed the, the review pretty pretty off the cuff and uh, try to get it out as soon as I can. Uh, this one was a little more delayed after release than I usually like to see. But um, guys, I don't know if you noticed the world's on fire. So oh yeah, I, I, I heard. heard. My bad. <laughs> yeah, really. All right. That's what the news says. I mean, when when the world was literally on fire last December in Australia, oh. we should have maybe taken a hint that the year mm. was going to be a little hard. <laughs> Am I off topic? I'm off topic. It's it's all topic right now. It's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's start off with uh, what this book is. So we we briefly described it in the in the introduction as it's a setting book. Mostly, I think, is fair to say. Um, focused on, in the world of Exandria, but mostly zoomed in on um, the features of Exandria around the continent of Wildmount that have appeared in or may someday appear in or are just extra details for you to know about from the second campaign of Critical Role, which takes place in Wildmount. The first uh, campaign took place in Tal'Dorei, um, but that's not the focus of this book, right? So, although I think one brief expedition into Wildmount. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had. I, th- I think that's right. Um, and and there was a book um, published about Tal'Dorei by Green Ronin, um, and there was there is some. Like I'm certain they didn't like copy and paste, but I, there was there's some overlap in what's covered in terms of like the gods and and the world and the history of the world a little to some degree. Uh, although some of that history of the world seems to have taken place more on Wildmount than Tal'Dorei, so we get even more sort of of that background uh, in this book. Um, but yeah, so that's that's. That's the gist of what this book is, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, it's also part like player focused options. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. We get uh, three new subclasses, um, a, a new, um, not quite a race, uh, in the form of the Hollow One. Um, Three new backgrounds, um, uh, a, a good fistful of new spells that are sort of cordoned off to two of the new subclasses, and then um, the, the Heroic Chronicle series. Yes. That, that whole, whole section. 
Uh, well, well, there's the, there's the heroic chronicle, which is a, a concept introduced in the character options. But then there's also the advent- right. the adventures. There's a, a series of adventures introduced here as well. Uh, and and by yeah. and by series, I don't actually mean series because they're all like levels one to three. So they're really all like what is it? Four, five different introductions. One, two, three, four. There's three. four four different introductions into the world in, in different regions of this continent. Tracy and and. And part of the book, too, is trying to, it says it's aimed at, like, a new DM and new players. And I think that's part of the reason that they're all, like, low-level adventures. Uh, I think that's, uh, that seems, seems right, yeah. Uh, I c- certainly the book is aware that it is going to be one of the first D&D purchases for a lot of its uh, target mm-hmm. audience. Uh, no one here misses the fact that Critical Role has been a huge uh, gateway into D&D for just enormous, uh, colossal numbers of people. And they are, they're pitching the product very much to those people. And I think that's super smart. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, it doesn't feel sort of um, underpitched to me as an experienced D&D fan. Okay. Not, not really at all. No, and, and I, I mean, there's a lot here as an experienced D&D player that appeals to me. Um, I'm, curi- I, I'm curious what each of our sort of critical role background is, because uh, that might influence our, our experience with this book. So um, I'll start. I have... I so I actually back when the Taldori book came out, I actually I interviewed Matt Mercer about the book, and we talked about it back then. Um, and at that point, I had listened to the podcast version of like I don't know, maybe ten episodes of Campaign One that they were like leading up to the end on pretty quick there. Uh, so I was way behind. Uh, I have. I am now still way behind, but I finished campaign one and I've listened to just a smidgen of campaign two. So I really don't have a lot of background with Wildmount, although I I know Exandria, I know the world, I know Critical Role decently well, and I've read the previous Taldori book um, and and actually used quite a bit of things from it um, fairly extensively. So. Uh, Tracy, what's your critical role experience? Uh, it's actually pretty limited because mm-hmm. uh, I think critical role came to critical mass uh, around the time my child was born. Uh. And I actually haven't had a lot of time where I can listen to anything because uh, most of my days are either at work or hanging out with him. And it wasn't entirely clear to me that I could let him listen. Although he loves Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, good. Uh, Brandis, the language gets a little salty in that show. It, it does sometimes. Yeah. Get a little salty. Um, uh, Brandis, what about you? So, so uh, when the book came out and I was writing my review, uh, I had just finished listening to episode fifty of the second campaign, which is, but by coincidence, the exact moment in time that the book is set. Uh, th- that is the exact time that they picked 
for to, to snapshot the whole setting. Um, and uh, so I'm only about eight more episodes in now. I'm on, I'm on episode 58. Like I checked my podcast to see where I am in episode 58. Um, but I've listened to all of the first campaign and uh, I'm working my way through the second just, you know, quarantine means I'm catching up. That's not supposed to happen. Okay. Uh, I was doing pretty good just staying even with them for a while. <laughs> Aaron, what, what's your where, where are you at then? Um, so I got on the Critical Role train when they were about like episode 15 or so of the first campaign. And I watched it as live as I could every week until that ended. Uh, and then I... I got to about episode 30 of the second campaign, and then I sort of fell off of it for a very long time uh, until this book came out, and I picked it up, and I started re- reading it, and I said, oh my gosh, I, re- I remember how much I used to love Critical Role, so I'm in the same mode as Brandis now, using the quarantine to catch up from about episode 30. I'm on like 46 now, so. Nice. So you're almost up to where this book is set. Uh, Ish, what about you? So uh, I have the dubious honor of having been uh, both on this review and the Teldori review. Um, And since then, I think I might have caught about a dozen episodes all out of sequence. So what I I see, I like. uh, And I have some friends that will invite me over sometimes for like a, you know, uh, a critical role night on a Thursday. And I'll go and watch that. And again, what I see is great. But I still ha- I don't have that connective tissue to be like okay I know what's going on I understand the, the kind of the, the direction of the story usually I get bits and pieces secondhand from my friends so I'm I'm about as much of a critical role novice as you can be okay so we have uh, two folks right you know fairly novice level but but appreciative we have two folks who are um, who are who are up to about the point in the timeline that this book takes place. And then I sort of sit somewhere in the middle uh, because uh, I'm a fan and I just don't have the time all the time to get caught up in everything. So um, here I am. Um, so, so yeah, so we, I think, and I think that's important to note because if the book is written f- primarily for the critical role fan, um, that's up to date and maybe watches it every week and whatever, right? The, that's, that's not most of us, right? None of us are up to date and current with where they're at. Some of us are a little closer than others. Because uh, cause you said you're at about 58 now, Brandis. How far, how far in are yeah. they now? Do you know? Uh, 90. <laughs> yeah. So, so you've got a, a 40 <clears throat> episodes left to catch up on. So. <laughs> Give or take, for sure. Yeah, and that's like six hundred hours of content, right? Right, Right. it's 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 absolutely just. Well, so so you're talking thirty and change. So realistically, a hundred and a hundred and a small number of of hours. Yeah, if it's Mm. uh, from about three to about four hours an episode, could be as high as one hundred and twenty hours of content. Right. By the way, that's crazy. Uh huh. No. But here we are. Well, and I'm way further behind than you are, so uh, I've got about twice that amount of content to catch up on. So, 
So yeah, so so that colors our our perspective, I think, a little bit. Um, we're all big D and D fans who are fans of Critical Role, but not necessarily up to date on what's going on with Critical Role. Because I had like questions, and maybe those of you a little further along, but like um, this, the cover features like this geometric shape that is listed in, as a magic item. Right? Is that a thing that yep. has has appeared in the campaign? I figured it. It's must, super important. I figured it must be if it's on it's- the cover, right? <laughs> It, it it is it is important enough to feature on the cover, yes. Okay. No question. Uh, so so I just got to uh, another of the the huge like world changing episodes that that feature that item, and I'm reluctant to spoil it for literally all of you. Right. <laughs> um, like I, I knew it was going to happen because it was talked about so intensely on Twitter. The like the Friday after the episode, mm. uh, just uh, Twitter was on fire. Like my whole feed was people talking about uh, the beacon, and oh, all right, I guess I guess we're doing that this episode is sort of <laughs> how it came across to me. Um, and, and you know it was weird to listen to a, a an outcome that shocking, knowing how it was going to turn out. I, I can't really put myself in the shoes of the fans at the time, mm-hmm. right? Who who just had nothing to go on for what was going to happen. Okay. Um, but I don't feel in the dark about anything that's in the book because it is so uh, sort of centered on roughly the first fifty or so episodes right. of the campaign. So you're up. Um, yeah, two of you are at least up to date to about to where the cam where this book sets. I feel like I understand what the book is talking about. Obviously, there are some places the characters are going to go after fifty-eight that I haven't like uh, I haven't seen in the show, so I don't know them from right. Matt's narration. But that doesn't feel like it matters in the same way. No, I would uh, ag- I would agree because the, the core conflicts have been laid down much more. Okay, right. Yeah, that, and that was my experience with the Taldora book is that I, at that point, had listened to almost none of Critical Role, uh, and I didn't understand his, the setting from his narration at all. But there's a degree to which you can sort of understand the quality of a setting book if you're coming into it not knowing anything about the setting, right, and seeing how much you can sort of yep. grok what it's about, right? Uh, I can never do that with a Forgotten Realms book again because – I've spent so much time in the Forgotten Realms. Uh, I can never come in, come to that with fresh eyes. I can do that a little bit with Wild Mound, right? I've seen basically at this point one town. They haven't left that town yet at the point that I'm at. So I so I'm really just at the beginning. Right. Um. So so let's let's talk about that Gazetteer bit then. Um, that is it's a what roughly 250 ish page book. Um. 260 ish yep, page book. It's what like um, so realistically the gazetteer is ninety nine pages of book or so. Well, uh, and and maybe a hundred. And that assumes that you don't include like the story uh, of Wild right. Mount section or the factions and societies, which I would argue, while it's not called right. the gazetteer, it's all kind of describing yeah, yeah. the society in the world, right? Um, yeah, for sure. So let's talk about that first opening. 150 some pages uh, of the book then that's sort of just introducing us to the world and to the setting um, 
how well do you think you you get the setting from from reading through that? And I'd like to start with Ish because you have the least ex- amount of experience, or you and Tracy have the least amount of experience with the setting. Yeah. Uh, no, I uh, poured over it uh, pretty well in about the last week, and it, it's an it's like an atlas, and it's I mean that in the best way possible. Um, it goes over a lot of things. It does one thing that I think a lot of other like campaign uh, campaign guides, gazetteers, so on and so forth, don't do, which is give you people of interest, and I think that's always super important to fleshing out uh, a setting. You can't just know that like this town is like Venice, but in the fantasy earth or whatever, like you got to know who's in charge of it. Like, you know, what kind of a government do they have? And and not in this kind of stuffy stat block kind of way, but it's really cool to be able to see what it means to live in this town and kind of what the interplay is. Um, and so I think they did a really good job. I wanted to point um, some uh, we'll point out like uh, the God section and like all of the things uh, that they put into that um, because they did a really good job of uh, bringing the whole setting very deeply into d and I know that that had already been happening from campaign one. Um, but I also know that a lot of the gods that uh, Matt had chosen from when he first started running the game were Pathfinder gods. And it seems like that has traces of it here and there but obviously you'd have to file off all kinds of serial numbers and it seems like they did that pretty admirably uh, I, I really like the way that all of that inter- integration has gone but uh, yeah I mean I didn't have a chance to read through every single area and every single um, kind of uh, city and city state but the ones that I did I was vastly impressed with because there's literally just this is brimming over with campaign ideas with encounter ideas and, and literally sometimes it's just here's an adventure you can do in this place and and they tell you like an episode this is what you know these are the things that would happen and that's an amazing thing that again a lot of other uh gazetteer type places don't do they do it slyly where they're like oh this these are problems in the region that you could maybe solve as an adventuring group but uh i think giving you like a very um steadfast like this is an adventure that you can definitely do here and this is how you would do it if you did uh really gives you it, it brings the whole setting to life yeah and the, the bit about uh the important npcs in the in the area in, in a setting book like this like i don't necessarily need that because i need to like stick to the canon but i need that because it gives me interest like oh we're in this place i need i need to throw somebody in front of them that's interesting to talk to right or i need adventure ideas and that's where that's where those npcs come in Hmm. And I found that rarely is any entry in this book purely just um, to check off all the boxes. Um, almost every NPC de- description, at least for me, had like material I could use. Um, just reading through all the members of the of the Dwendalian Empire, like royal family, that's a that that family is a mess, like in the best possible way. <laughs> um, perfect for for adventures and and such. And isn't that part of what Matt's known for is like this characterization and bringing things to life in, in a, I mean, a relatively compressed area. Uh, and what I mean by that is the book's not that long compared to the amount of people like NPCs and other things you're getting from it. Yeah, no, I th- and I think that's right. I think he's, uh, it, it brings out this, this level of evocative and interesting without, 
bogging me down in lots of like background and lore and um, and that kind of you know like I appreciate that kind of detail in a setting that I know really well. Like I want my 500 page gazetteer of the Forgotten Realms because that's super fun for me, but I know the world well and it's not overwhelming. But when I pick up uh, a setting book, like uh, I love the Midgard setting from Cobalt Press, right? But when I pick up that world book, it's really intimidating because it's, it's, it's just as dense as like the third edition Forgotten Realms gazetteer. Uh, and I have a hard time really just wrapping my head around it and understanding it and getting getting into that world, um, you know. Whereas this does a really nice job of like giving you enough to give you a sense of the place, uh, and enough to help you tell a story in the place, and but not enough to like overwhelm me <laughs> with information about the place, you know. Yep, uh, I think that they they kept the. Uh the location entries pretty tidy. Um, like I, I have plenty of years of reading um, Forgotten Realms setting books, where Volo drills down to the the quality of ale in this in this drinking establishment, as opposed to this one over here. Volo, dude, I want <laughs> adventures. I, I I I need something, man. I need a bad guy. I need, I just need a bad guy. <laughs> Um, and this, this handles that, right? Um, it, in that, it reminded me of what I liked so much in, um, uh, the recent Eberron book, right? Where I was really, really into the, um, very hard hitting and to the point, um, sections on each region, um, they didn't try to tell me about every village. They tried to tell me, "Here's what this place is like. Here's what here's a cool adventure you you have here, or maybe because it's Eberron, like a, a D10 table of adventures you have here." Um, whereas this book sticks to about three adventure hooks, including a like level guideline for when that sort of thing is appropriate. Um, and there's a really Big difference in how much depth each special covers, right? Some of them are an encounter or two, and some of them are a whole big thing. One thing I wanted to say about the gods, because I think it's interesting talking about it in terms of Pathfinder, it also reminded me a lot of 4E because the Raven Queen was there a lot, uh, Melora, who has a special place in my heart, uh, and a, a few of the other stuff there. Uh, right, definitely. Like, uh, it, It's clear in the, the Taltare book and in the, the uh, season one podcast that Matt is drawing very heavily from the, the 4E cosmology and then has to um, sort of slide that under the rug and then now he gets to slide it back out and show it off and it's cool. Well I was even kind of curious at the time because um, I mean he's straight up like a good chunk of the 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 Pantheon is straight out of the, the fourth edition um, Pantheon. Yep. Right. Uh, and so I was, I was a little like, I was a little surprised because fourth edition had the most strict uh, in terms of licenses um, that, and it wasn't published by wizards of the coast. It was published by green Ronin. So I was a little surprised he was able to just completely take these entities and throw them into, into that 
that book like he did. Uh, I don't know if there was an arrangement or, or if the SRD that existed at the time kind of covered it, uh, but or if it's just, you know. Well, so in in Taldore, he didn't ever use their proper names. Oh, yeah? In the actual book, mm-hmm. uh, mm. Saren Ray is not called Saren Ray. Like, all, they're all described by a title that describes that, you know, oh, I didn't remember is that. the name of their position, not the actual god's name. They that were made, almost like, like uh, 13th age icons, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, like, I want to say that the text might call her the Wild Mother, not Melora. Okay. So... That's the general thrust here. So that brings me to to a similar... Well, that leads me to a, to a question I was going to get to eventually anyway. Uh, some of us read the Taldori book, obviously. Um, I am curious how your recollection... Now, I didn't go back and restudy the Taldori book in preparation for this, but I'm curious how your impressions of that book and this book compare. So I have cracked the cover of Taldore while standing in my favorite local gaming store and then put it back on the shelf because I couldn't justify the expense at the time. That's not a judgment on the book. That's just where I was. Okay. I do think that uh, personally, I like this one better than the Taldore guide. Um, I think uh, Matt's a better writer now and the specific like setting material of Wildmount uh, I find more interesting than the more like uh, Tal Dore is it's a little generic, little like uh, basic quote unquote fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that there's more of like a, a voice in in this one as opposed to the Tal Dore one, but it, both are excellent books though. Ish, did you have a a, a comparison? Yeah, um, I think just during this quarantine, I've been looking over my books just apropos of nothing. So I did look through the Taldori uh, guide even before I knew I was going to do this episode. Um, And, you know, they're both neat books. They're both very distinct. uh, And I think that uh, the Explorer's Guide to Wild Mount, I was going to call it Wild Mount too. Um, (laughs) But the the, the newer book definitely shows a lot more polish and it kind of shows a lot more of the uh, kind of uh, writing chops and and the kind of intentionality of being like we're not just going to give you information like word for word, we're going to actually infuse a lot of this stuff with like really cool ideas that will help and and I think the the idea that it is less of a book for fans to look through and and be excited, which Taldori was, and that, that that made it a really good book in its own right. This is more like if you're just now getting into Dungeons and Dragons and you really like Critical Role, we're going to kind of lay out a really good framework for you to do that. And I think that it really knocked it out of the park while also being a really good book for the fans of the show. I think this this book is serving two purposes, whereas the Taldori mm-hmm. book felt like it was mostly serving one. Like the Taldori book was, this is a book for fans of Critical Role who want to play in this world, right? Um, and we're going to give you all of that I feel like the the gazetteer bit of that was more detailed. It was a little bit more like the third edition Forgotten Realms campaign guide to me, um, and and it was overwhelming to me as well because that I mean I had at that point barely listened to any of the the show, so um, I, I my head was swimming trying to get wrap it around all of it. Uh, this is both serving the purpose of let's 
have an easy on-ramp for all the new Critical Role fans who want to go check out D&D. But I think it's also an on-ramp for people who like D&D and want to check out the world of Critical Role. Um, mm-hmm. So, Because it's I think it serves that purpose. Like, it, it's a nice... The Gazetteer section is not overwhelming. It's full of that inspiration piece that we talked about. You know, it, it's a, I feel like it's a good on-ramp for me as somebody who's never run in Exandria before that, oh, I could maybe run some things. In, providing level one to three adventures uh, also serves that purpose because that's one of the things I always struggle with in a new setting is, okay, but, but what kind of stories am I going to tell in this setting? Like it's not always – uh, evident for, to me, like what kind of stories I want to tell. It's like it's like playing in Dragonlance, right? Dragonlance is a great setting with a lot of stuff going on, but but what story am I going to tell when when it feels like the story is already told, right? <laughs> that, um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and and Critical Role settings, the Exandria could feel the same way. It could feel like that because they have this massively popular well-known story that's being told that is world shaking and what have you so how am i going to fit in and i feel like this book tries to sort of bridge that gap and tries to show me okay but here are the stories you're going to tell here's the way you're going to do that so Mm -hmm. yeah and i really like how little uh the mighty nine and vox machina are mentioned in the book Mm -hmm. they're only even very tiny like sidebars or one or or once or twice in various location descriptions they really let you forge your own path in it, which is awesome. Brandis, you look like you have something to say. Um, <laughs> I, I basically agree with uh, with what you're saying here. Um, you know, the situation of here's a setting book. It even includes conflicts and ideas on what to do, but I still can't figure out how to string these together into a story that tells that setting. It's something I really struggle with. Um, what I what I often say when I'm having that thought is that I want to see this through the eyes of someone who loves it. To some extent, you know, having listened to Critical Role, I have a much better idea, like what a Wild Mount campaign should feel like. But uh, the scale of story that they're telling feels very much more personal in Wild Mount than some of the the Mattel Ray story did. Uh, because of the you know massive events like the Chroma Conclave in in the first campaign, uh, not to say that there probably aren't massive events coming up in me listening to the show, but um, there's a very different feel to the campaign, and that to me really carries through to the Wild Mount book as compared to the Taldorei book. But getting comfortable using someone else's setting is a huge challenge, um, and I think that. You know, it, it's hard to remember for uh, people like you and me, Jeff, when we didn't know Forgotten Realms well enough to, uh, you know, go see to the pants with it uh, and just be completely comfortable. Like uh, they've been working for literal decades to make it approachable, and sometimes they succeed, and sometimes <laughs> so you know. And part of what makes that setting work, Forgotten Realms, as a setting work for me, is that there is a huge selection of adventures and novels and all these other properties that like gives me a sense of the little stories that are told in this world right and things that i could do um but other settings you don't like not everybody can be 
Wizards of the Coast and TSR in the 80s and 90s, right? Uh, with the the novel lines and all that kind of stuff, right? And that makes sense. But yeah, you're right. It's, it's harder to get into the fan perspective, you know, somebody who loves it perspective um, without going through it that way. So, so we've talked a good amount about the, the gazetteer section and the way that the world is described and whatever. Uh, are we ready to talk about the, the mechanical bits? Sure. Yeah. 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 All right. So at about uh, 160 pages in, it switches over to what I would call the more mechanical section of the book, right? It's not it's, – it's describing character options, uh, race, class, um, new magics, that kind of stuff. Then it goes into adventures, then magic items and, and other treasures, uh, and then a bestiary full of um, creatures, which got weird. <laughs> the the bestiary did right so uh, <laughs> so so let, I guess let's start with the character options. Uh, Brandis, you broke down that we have was it three new subclasses: one for fighter, two for wizard. Yep. We we don't actually have new any new races, do we? Uh, no new races. One new supernatural gift that alters your functional race. Yeah. So, and I found that I found the fact that there's no new races to be interesting, uh, in that like they throw in the kitchen sink. Every almost every race I think that's been published uh, in any book across the, the the product line is available here in Wildmount, uh, but none of them are original to Wildmount. But but most of them that aren't core uh, PH races got republished here, right? Yep. <laughs> Which also made me feel like forty. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's like the edition where you could be anyone. <laughs> yeah, uh, there, there is one uh, new sub race, I guess, uh, for elves, the the pallid elves. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, yep. And uh, there's a new sub race for uh, halflings. Oh yes. Um, and is that it, or is there one more? I like that even turtles get to be a, a core race in Wild Mount. I just, I really appreciate how this is both like reprinting all these races is a huge help to getting new critical role players to feel fully invested. And it is also a huge support to the adventurers league folks, uh, who are limited to X plus to core plus one still, I think. Okay. Mm. Or has that been relaxed? I don't know. Um, no, it's still core plus one. And unfortunately, uh, they wouldn't be able to use this book as one of theirs. At least I don't know. Think they can, my, my but bad. what do I know? Um, I, I, I they would be crazy not to eventually incorporate uh, Wild Mount somehow into Adventures League, but I don't know what the licensing issues might come out with of that might be. Fair, fair enough. I am not an Adventures League uh, participant, so I don't really follow the the nuances of those rules as closely as I could. So so right, uh, you get the the Pallid Elves and then they reprint Sea Elves. Um, and then Lotus Den halflings. So, so pallid elves are um, elves who are especially um, tied to the moon and to perception. Um, all elves are tied to perception as a as a concept, but we really double down on it here. And then uh, they have a, a trait called Blessing of the Moon Weaver that grants them some spells, as one does with. Racial traits. Um, then Lotus Den halflings 
they're sort of the druid ones. Uh, they have a trait called Charlo. The especially like out in the forest halflings, as compared to your your stealthier and your more hobbity ones in the player's handbook. Mm-hmm. Although um, Forgotten Realms has a sub race of of halfling, the Ghost Wise, that are kind of they fill that niche, although mechanically differently. Right, and, and then we also have two new um, Dragonborn sub races. Dragonborn right. don't typically have sub races, qua sub races, but they instead have all the different colors. Right. These are actual sub races that still have a Dragonborn color. Right. Because um, in 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 Exandria, there's sort of the the highborn noble Dragonborn race, and then there's the the people sort of on the ground, working class Dragonborn. Right. Though everyone's on the ground now because. The Chroma Conclave brought down the city, but right. that's, that's another story. Um, I did also want to point out that uh, orcs are slightly different, mm. um, just just by a skosh, but they uh, remove their intelligence penalty, uh, and so now they're just like a normal playable class that you I don't see. have to feel like you're uh, playing a monster per se, but like an actual race. Good catch. Uh, they, they're also improved with the. Um, Primal Intuition trait, uh, which replaces um, Menacing. Uh, previously, they got Proficiency in Intimidation. Now it's Proficiency in two skills um, from a list of six, uh, one of which can be Intimidation. Okay. So that's a that's a really pretty great boost. Two skills from a race is a big deal, y'all. Yeah, that's that's a good upgrade. And this is, the, this is consistent with Eberron. Uh, we should anticipate this becoming kind of... They're they're testing waters here is what I think I'm seeing. I think we'll see this become more and more official. I'm trying to make sure I remember correctly too, so I might be wrong on this, but didn't they change the, I don't know the right word, philosophy or background for how orcs became orcs to like people think it was because of, I'm going to butcher the name, Grumpsh? Like that's why they were so angry and aggressive, but it turns out that it, it, they're no more aggressive than anyone else. Just people are prejudiced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it totally speaks to um, the flavor of the setting where I think uh, Matt and crew take great pains to throw off some of the like older stereotypes of the game and make even the quote-unquote monsters like real people. Um a great example is in the it's it's not player option so sorry for the digression um but even in the one of the adventures um there's some sahagan uh that have like names and personalities which it totally took me by surprise initially right what what? (laughs) these aren't just like bloodthirsty shark people they have they have wants and bonds and flaws what is this but it totally works right it's great so the the point that uh, Tracy is referring to is actually kind of worth reading into the record here. Um, stories tell of how the blood of the ruiner, that's Grumsh, uh, flows in the veins of all orcs, driving them to commit acts of terrible violence and anger. Orcs call this fury Grum, or the curse of ruin, and use it to refer to everything from battle rage to a bad temper. Half-orcs are said to have inherited the blood of the Ruiner and to carry the same bloodlust and fury that orcs do. Orcs and half-orcs do feel a certain pull toward violence and anger, but the simple truth is that there is no curse of ruin. No supernatural power drives orcs to kill. Rather, they are simply victims of the same selfish, violent impulses that corrupt all mortal beings. All right. There you go. In the record. So, I I think 
one of the things that I, I'm eager to get to is the the new class options, the spells and the subclasses and whatever. But I do want to ask really quickly, um, even though we're down to like, we've been doing this for 47 minutes already. Um, I do want to ask about the Hollow One uh, supernatural gift sort of race add-on. Um, because it's one of those things, I looked at it, as I often do when I'm reading these things, right? I'm looking through them and I'm saying, yeah, but what can I lift and put into my campaign right now? Like, I'm not in Wildmount at the moment, but what can I lift and put into my current game? And um, my characters just walked into Bar Barovia. And the Hollow One feels like a pretty good option to throw into Curse of Strahd uh, in a lot of ways. But then part of me also looked at it and says, yeah, but like... What's the what's the give and take? It, it seems like it's just a power boost. I guess that's why they call it a gift, right? It's just a – mechanically, it's a power boost and there's no real downside to it, right? I mean, yeah, that's what I see. It, it's a power increase. It's fairly tame overall. Like yeah. It's better, but it's not – Revenance does have some potential to, be a, to have a downside. You retain your creature type, yet you register as undead dispels and other effects that detect the presence of the undead creature type. So that's – might it be great for you? When the cleric turns undead or whatever. Well, so it says detect. Uh, oh. I, I, I'm assuming that's more sort of sense undead rather than turn undead because mm. you aren't truly undead. But I don't want to try to make a rules call of what that phrasing means. <laughs> Just that, that was my read on it. It uh, definitely seems like it's more of that kind of thing that you would see in the 90s with things like GURPS and World of Darkness. Where it's got a very high social toll, and a, but also a really high like in-game mechanic bonus, and like if the if a DM a DM can either like be a jerk about it and be like, yeah, nobody treats you right because you're you look like you're undead, he can play it up like the normal amount to make you feel that like you're you did a trade-off, or he can just forget that it even exists, and you've got that bonus for basically no uh, no loss. Yeah, that 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 would that would um, sound like a fine thing. Um, that there is a, a sentence here that says uh, elsewhere, hollow ones are indistinguishable from living creatures, save for a faint stench of necromancy that lingers about them. So, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you could like be prejudiced against hollow ones per se, unless you had like magic. But, I mean, oh, I mean, the art but, literally on the page doesn't support true. that idea. That, that's, that's, I'm just gonna throw that out there. Bit very gaunt, yeah, with giant swords stuck through them, yeah. Gray skin and pupilless eyes. The idea of using them in uh, in Barovia and Ravenloft, though, like that stench of necromancy feels mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, but who doesn't have the stench of necromancy about them? Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, no okay. soul, you'll fit right in. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so let's get into the the classes, the the Echo Knight, the uh, Chronergy, and the Graviturgy magics. Uh, I think are the initial thing that um, people are talking about that when this came out in my sphere. Um, what do we think? So, so Echo Knight is so. So, I guess it's, it's worth pointing out the the book introduces this idea of what is it, Dunamancy, which is um, sort of tapping into the power of possibilities, uh, and that. And I'm not entirely sure how, but that means both gravity stuff and time stuff. Like, time makes sense to me. I'm not sure how gravity plays into the power of possibility. But there we are. Uh, and so the Echo Knight is is a fighter subclass that, like, pulls 
on this this magical energy to sort of like create echoes of themselves from other timelines. So there's like another version of you running around from another timeline helping you out on the battlefield. What do we think of the Echo Knight? I mean, it sounds super fun to play to me. It makes me think that it's one of those classes that's really fun for a player and really fiddly for a dungeon master. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely my favorite of the three. I definitely want to play one soon. And they made it work without a grid, but it again feels so much to me. And this is probably just because I'm on a 4E kick. Uh, <laughs> it felt like back on 4E again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where you could play it without a without a map and a grid, but do you really want to, you know? So, yeah. It just gave you a little bit more of that tactical feel without it being a grid minis game sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Right, it, it definitely calls to mind things like the uh, the shaman mm. from Four E, but it doesn't project an aura, so that that grid sense is definitely not there. Like, I think they did everything they could to like make the concept still manageable. Is my my feeling? Um, it's very big, flashy magic from the fighter. Right. Not not every fighter class gets flashy. Like this is this is just magic. There's no remotely physical explanation for this. Yeah. So, in the interest of time, then let's talk about the. Um, then you have the two new wizard schools. Uh, 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 what is it? Chronergy and Graviturgy. And Chronergy is the the time one, and Graviturgy is the gravity one, right? Uh, and Chronergy uh, drives me a little crazy because I keep want, wanting it to be uh, what what do we used to call time magic? Chronomancy, I keep Chronomancy, yeah. yeah. I keep wanting it to be Chronomancy, and it's not. Uh, <laughs> but uh, thoughts on the two uh, new wizard schools? Well, so like uh, people have been trying to get uh, the the time mage and time magic concept right, certainly since second edition. Like uh, Chronomancer sitting on my shelf, guys. Yep, um, and. For my money, this is the best that has seen print. Mm-hmm. I, uh, definitely agree. I, I don't think I've seen something that captures as many good cinematic moments of being mm-hmm. a, a time mage while still staying in bounds on power as this does. That's me. Yeah, so the chronergy piece here, though, is also the thing that I am most hesitant to incorporate into my campaign, given that I'm not running a wild man campaign, right? If I'm going to introduce time magic into my game, like that needs to be the theme. That needs to be at least a theme of my story uh, in my mind. Um, Cause it's significant. Like it has significant potential to mess with things otherwise. So. Well, it doesn't say you can like travel back to, uh, I don't know the uh, age of might in Dragonlance, right? Um, or you know, uh, travel back to the Arcane Age and Forgotten Realms. But I mention those because uh, time travel magic, of one form or another, is super super common in fantasy, mm-hmm. and is very well attested in um, the realms and Kryn. Oh no, I'm not. I'm not saying that this isn't the type of story that gets told in fantasy. I'm just saying that's not the type of story that I'm telling in my in my campaign or any campaign I've ever run. And I'm not 
just too keen on introducing it through this this class option unless that's the kind of story I'm going to tell. Fair enough. Jeremiah McCoy, who we both know uh, and who I'm sure <laughs> listeners might know, actually ran a campaign with us once that was all about time travel. Uh, and it would this class would fit in really well there. Um, you know, so I kind of want to go back and have him run that campaign again, only I'm going to do this wizard. But. Okay, so... Um, then you have a, the, the handful of spells uh, that I think Brandis had mentioned at the beginning, and they kind of fit into these themes just so that you have a little more chronergy and graviturgy themed spells to pull from for these wizards. And they're really intended to go along with those subclasses. Um, I think it was your assessment, right? Right. Uh, the, the sidebar suggests that these are locked to the chronergist uh, and uh, graviturgist. Um, and uh, I'm not really sure how that's playing forward in the in the campaign, um, whether Caleb is allowed to learn any of the spells or not. But there's a sidebar about whether other people should get them. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a DM call. All right. And then we get into the there's a handful of backgrounds, and and I think that's pretty easy to to bring in, right? Um, backgrounds are. are uh, j- go ahead. Just as a as a reviewing note, the spells are a very mixed bag. Okay, what do you mean by that? Uh, um, there's some some really there's some very very nice and simple ones, and there's some that just didn't quite hit it, just a little bit off. Off, and um, like they don't mesh with the like the five E aesthetic, or they're not well designed. Often or? that they're often that they may be objectively worse than uh, spells of lower level. Okay. Okay. Like, uh, Gravity Fisher just doesn't land. Mm-hmm. It's a shame, but there we are. Okay, and that happens. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, I want, I want to, before we move off of player options, though, I do want to talk about the Heroic Chronicle. I think it's gotten a decent amount of attention. Um, and I think it's worth talking about this concept a little bit. So, who wants to... Uh, somebody besides myself and Brandis, because we talk a lot. Uh, somebody tell, besides the two of us, tell us about the Heroic Chronicle. So I love it because I've loved the concept of it uh, for a long time. And um, if anybody has ever played, oh shoot, like uh, old Artelsorian games, they had something called the Life Path Table, very similar. But this is obviously very, very tailored towards, uh, you know, Exan- or the Wild Mountain and whatnot. Uh, but the idea... For, for those who don't know what a, the life path, the path table is, is that uh, you roll out who you are kind of from birth to, to current date. Uh, and it can it can tell you, like, what interesting things happened in your childhood, how many siblings you have, what your parentage is, and so on and so forth. And not everybody wants to get into the weeds. Some, pe- someone, some people make their characters to be the inveterate uh, orphan murderer, uh, axe-wielding badass. Uh, but some people want to know where they came from and they don't want to like plot it all out. So this is a really good table for just rolling out randomly to see, okay, I come from a big family and we were all very rich and something happened and we lost our fortune and so on and so forth. Um, as I understand, uh, I believe that it was so well received that there is now a Forgotten Realms version officially through D&D Beyond, I think. Um, and I, I want to go and... Yeah, I think it dropped I today. Go and- peruse it because it sounds amazing and i think i'll use it for all of my characters forever now although here's my here's my trouble with that maybe it's just because 
I know the realms decently well. Um, the Forgotten Realms is not like the the experience of living in the Forgotten Realms is not universal. So I almost would rather have a different one of these for the different regions of the realms. You know, it doesn't have to be for each country, but you know, one for uh-huh. the unapproachable east, and one for the Sword Coast, and one for you know the the Dale Lands or whatever. Um, well, get on it. <laughs> and, and and that's what I was saying is that, uh, thinking is that at some point it would be nice if they gave and, and not that people with experience necessarily need it you can you can backwards design this pretty pretty easily I think um, mm-hmm. but I but I feel you know if they published like a template like here's sort of this the stepping stones of how you make one of these and, and suit, match it to your thing I think there's an opportunity there but yeah no and, and it it gets into it gets fairly specific. Now, I, I could see obviously there's two ways of using it. You could you can roll randomly on all those things and then make up your character as you go through random rolls. Uh, I think mm-hmm. players sometimes want to have a little more control, right? Um, and so the other way of doing it is like here's your list, pick the ones that apply to your character, you know, and 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 do it that way. I do find it interesting. Um, like some of them, and I like that they they all create like this system of like allies and what is it allies and rivals is that the the wording they use yeah mm-hmm. that gives lots of interesting in, uh, npc interaction opportunities for future you know uh role playing um and and um oh yeah but then there's also elements like does everybody need a prophecy like that seems strange <laughs> you know but well so we uh tried out the, the Heroic Chronicle system the other night um, with Jeremiah, and um, none of us could really get a handle on how to engage with um, uh, prophecies in thinking about a character because it's an unstatedly long distance in the future, and they're they're quite different from one another in scale of statement um, and sort of where they would fit conceptually into a career. Um, and so the prophecies, would, but most of the rest of it we really dug. Yeah. Uh, of course, there were some jokes about how your favorite fruit was your most important role. That, that <laughs> is very, definitely, definitely. very decisive. Absolutely. I, as well, rolled the character with this uh, yesterday, and maybe it was just the randomness of the dice, but I felt like I got a very like complicated person out of it. Uh, they had like three allies, two rivals, they, they had like three fateful events, they had a dream from a demon lord that gave them madness, then they went to prison, but then they also trained with a master warrior. Um, probably I could have, like, as the player pared down some of that on my own but uh it, it it did just feel like i got a very unwieldy person given to me out of it and if i brought them to a campaign the dm would say whoa buddy cut back on like some of these things settle down other people gotta play too <laughs> uh faithful moments are objectively overpowered yeah okay like there's not an attempt to give you a trade-off mm. in exchange for them uh some of them are bad for you while still being overpowered Except for the one that might do nothing if you're a fighter. I digress. Explain what you mean by being overpowered. They give you really big stuff. Maybe it's a starting magic item. Maybe it's an extra feat. Maybe it's some extra skill proficiencies. Like There's there's one, on the other hand, that gives you proficiency with all medium armor, shields, and martial weapons. Uh, you also have a random form of indefinite madness. That's 
great. <laughs> so depending on my class, this might not do anything except give me madness. Cool. Cool. Although madness can be cured with a spell, so. Uh, so, so my point being that these are uh, very uneven in, in overall power, and so if everyone being on the same power level and you being aware of it as a player is important to you, this table is not for you. Right. I think, I think that's fair. And this section started tra- uh, reminding me more of world building that I see like going back to Dresden Files and stuff like that. That And particularly the, um, the first section, which is the background section, that's I think a lot for players, although you are doing the world building. The thing I wondered about the prophecy section is it, it seems more like it's meant to help uh, a DM create a story that is going to appeal to the players a little bit more potentially, or at least um, have them feel like their characters have meaning in that world. And I don't know how that actually ends up playing, but that it just that what that's what came across to me about it. And then it has because you get those um, benefits when you hit your milestone uh, in regards to your prophecy. Uh, it seems like a way to to make sure players stick to it rather than throwing new ideas out every session. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe if they had just renamed the prophecy section character goals, it would have been easier to wrap one's head around. Yeah. Yep. That'd be fair. We talked a little bit about the fact that there's four adventures in here and there's sort of four regions of the continent. And so they gave you a level one to three sort of intro adventure for each of those regions. Uh, you've got your... Um, your your seafaring based adventure. You've got your up in the frozen north adventure, uh, and then you've got your your other two sort of dealing with the they, they, the the those settings. At least the way they're presented in this uh, these adventures feel a little less iconic. You know, because they're not like in a in an easy to define genre of here's your go into the ocean thing and here's your trudge around in the in the on the ice thing. Um, but they all sort of do a nice job of introducing uh, a campaign if you wanted to start in those regions. And I know Matt in interviews had talked a decent amount about how, you know, there's four kind of regions of this continent and you could do a whole campaign just in one region. And that has a very specific sort of feel and genre to it and whatever. And I feel like the, the, that's what these adventures are trying to do is sort of introduce these and, and go from there. So uh, anybody have other thoughts or things they wanted to say about the, the adventures? No, except that they seemed really neat and they, they seem to be like a good mix of at least the social aspect and the combat aspect. I don't, I don't know that I delved into them to know if there was uh, necessarily any of the exploration column, but probably. I didn't give the adventures a close read because my Tribality reviews, uh, there's only so much I can glean quickly from an adventure without running it. You know how it is. And that's that's what Dar Jr. is asking in the chat is whether or not anybody had a, has had a chance to run any of them, and uh, I suspect not, just because of I don't know issue of time. So yeah, um, I, I I was able to run the first one, the one set on the Menagerie Coast, um, okay. where the Sahagan attack. Uh, it's great. I I love how each of the adventures they get straight to the point. Um, if you run them as is anyway, um, they all start with like the thing happening. Um, Town gets attacked by the Sahagan. Uh, there's some great sort of introductory choices, like do you get get out? Do you save some people? Um, and the adventure, I think, because it's written for newer DMs, is pretty explicit 
in giving you if your characters do this, do this. If they do this, um, do this, 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 this other thing. Um, three earrings, the sort of like main NPC of that uh, adventure. She's a pirate captain, though. Shush, that's a that's a spoiler. Um, <laughs> uh, she's given. There's a lot of great advice on how to run her. Um, she can uh, mechanically, at certain points, uh, gain favor or, or, or lose favor with the party um, in like really explicit ways, which makes it easy to run. So, um, yeah, I had a great time. Yeah. Okay. So good. And I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the adventure Frozen Sick, which is the one up in the Frozen North sort of uh, region, was at one time during the period of quarantine offered for free on D and D Beyond. Uh, so people could check it out. And I, as I recall from the conversations around that, uh, it was also written by a friend of the show, James Intercasso. Um, so that was apparently of the, what, three or four writers, they, they divvied up the adventures and that was his. So, um, so then let's move into treasures and bestiary and, and wrap this thing up. Um, I was real, like when this book came out, a lot of my players were real excited. Oh, sweet. We can look for more magic item options and whatever. Cause they were in the middle of downtime and searching for magic items and doing all this kind of stuff right around that time. And I was real quick to be like, uh, uh, no, we're not going to do another Ravnica. Like stop. Like some of these items are very specifically themed to this setting. And I'm not just going to blanket allow them all unless I've looked through them. Right. Um, that said, now that I've had a chance to look through them, I don't know that any of them feel super, other than like the legendary ones, right? None of them feel like they're super wild mounty, right? Most of them I feel like could fit into just about any fantasy setting. Again, with the exception of those unique things, like the, the, was the beacon that is very iconic to, to how wild mount works and the, and those kinds of spirits and whatever that they're dealing with in that story. Um, even the ones, uh, was it Grog's, uh, blood axe from the first campaign is statted out here. Um, and, and highlights the weirdness of, uh, fifth edition a little bit, um, in that it, it, that breaks my brain because it specifically says in the, in the description that this blood axe is the one that Grog used, which means there's only one. But its rarity is listed as very rare, which in, which implies there's more than one. Uh, and so that's where, like, I kind of wish instead of using rarity for magic items, they would have listed, like, power level for magic items instead. Because clearly that's what the very rare means, is indicating a power level, not an actual rarity. But that's just a nitpick of 5th of edition to me, not, not an actual problem with the book, right? Yeah, I didn't have too many uh, like super big opinions about the magic items, but I did just want to take a moment to shout out the item with the best name, maybe in any book, uh, the Potion of Maximum Power. <laughs> okay, That's great. There were some. There were several things, as I recall, um, that had interesting names. I want to see a potion of maximum effort. <laughs> maximum effort. And what about reward? Yes. Yeah, and and yeah. So absolutely, I think um, I don't. And some of them are, are weird and dark, too. Like the the butcher's bib, 
that's just constantly dripping with blood. All the other effects are, are relatively positive, right? But that it's constantly dripping with blood. Uh, you know, and th so yeah, I, I I kind of liked pretty much all of the magic items and didn't have any question about, like, as I read through them, I'm like, all right, here's the part where I got to be real picky because my players are going to want to try to integrate these things. And then I went through them all and it's like, well, other than the few, like, very rare to legendary sort of things, like, no, I'm, I'm kind of cool with all of this. Um, they also add some more uh, vestiges of divergence. And I say more because those of us who um, read the Tal'Dorei book were already introduced to this concept. Uh, so far as I can tell, that you have different vestiges of divergence. So you're not going to see any of Vox Machina's vestiges here. But there are other ones. Um, and, and they just sort of add to the collection then. And they seem to function mechanically in a very similar way right they scale up over time and you have to hit sort of these story points to give personal sort of character story points to it to um raise it up to the next level and, and it's a neat concept and it's one that's been around in D, &D forever and, and i think this is a decent um story driven way of implementing it so i've used the vestiges from the Taldori book uh, a lot in my campaign. So then tell me about the arms of, of the betrayers. I started reading through these and then realized very quickly, this feels like a thing that I don't know about because I'm not very far into the second campaign. Is that accurate? I haven't seen any of them show up in, in the campaign yet, uh, as far as I know, but um, they, they feel like something that would show up a little later in the campaign, you know, maybe around ninth level and higher rather than at low level, necessarily. Okay, and so they're basically all sort of these, uh, what, artifacts connected to the to the betrayer gods, and, and so they're, they're big, powerful things, but they're all a little bit dark. Is that is that a fair description? Yeah, they definitely seem like the anti-vestiges, right? If you're going to yep. give your players uh, sure. big, powerful swords, you've got to give the, the enemies big, powerful swords, too. Mm-hmm. And then it finishes off with the the bestiary um, that I described as getting a little bit weird earlier in the recording, um, because a lot of it seems to be like let's take a normal sort of well normal uh, crazy fantasy D and D creature, but then do weird things with eyes, <laughs> right? Uh, there's there's the the one at the, towards the beginning of it that has this weird giant eye coming out of it, the tip of its tail. It's like a cat with a big weird giant eye coming out of the tip of its tail. Um, but they're all kind of like just sort of take typical D&D monsters and make them just a little more twisted and weird. And, and in some cases a little more uh, feels like aberrant. Uh, that's, that's definitely true for a lot of them. Um, things like Gloomstalkers are a big deal in the um, Vox Machina campaign so it's not surprising to see those here um, and then uh, having their own zombie variant, sure fine but, uh, we could always use more zombie variants um, <laughs> more bounders are a, a, an important thing where I'm in the campaign right now that's definitely relevant um, the, the, the Marrow Shallow Priests have shown up so, so these, like I've seen how they actually show up in play. Then the Aeorian hunters um, and the core spawn. Just I have no idea yet. No clue. Yeah, yeah. I look at the the core spawn, and this is a type of creature that gets its little entry with uh, three different stat blocks to describe a sort of a hierarchy within the, their their society or whatever. Uh, and it feels like something that is a major story point in 
the setting. So it'll be interesting to see if it actually shows up in the, in the campaign or not, or if it's just one of those things that he threw in and like, this is really important to this area of the setting that we're just not going to happen to visit in the campaign. And, but here it is for all of you. Yep. Um, Cause he kind of said that there would be stuff like that too. Like we're going to explore things in this book that aren't necessarily going to be explored in the campaign. So I think for me, the standout creature in the bestiary is probably the sea fury. Uh, it's sort of a n- nice lower ish CR like legend, legendary creature. Um, I think it works really well. It's got a lot of great flavor. I, I mean, could use more hit points, of course, but everything could. could mean. <laughs> and of course, when when Matt puts it in front of the players, he'll give more hit points. Yes. Because he does. <laughs> Anybody have any sort of last thoughts? Any last things you want to say about the the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount uh, before we, we take off? Tiefling art. Yeah, what about it? Um... I just I really like the image that they had for for Tiefling's uh, body positivity and all that was nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, piggybacking off that, there is a lot of uh, gender diversity in the book. Uh, lots of like uh, non-binary and such, which was always great to see. Like officially stated. If I had a- anything to say about it, just that this book really knocked it out of the park, and uh, I. The people might hate me for saying this, but I kind of wish that they would revisit the Sword Coast Adventures guide and write it more like this one. Same. Well, and I I didn't have that thought about the Sword Coast Adventures guide in this book, but um, it did occur to me since they came out relatively close to each other. This is a better introduction to this setting than I think the Eberron book was to Eberron. Now, I don't need the Eberron book to be to have everything I need for Eberron, right? Because we still have lots of stuff that we can we can find on DMs Guild old books and whatever uh, from previous editions. So there's still lots of Eberron stuff to pull from, and this doesn't have very much. But in terms of an on-ramp uh, into a new setting, I thought this was about as well as, as a setting book could do. That's fair. So if we, if we want to do a comparative review, that's sort of a different matter. And <laughs> Yeah, I was actively trying not to, but this is a last thought. Right. So. <laughs> so Eberron is presenting a world that – it's presenting more continents in a single book. Than this it is, is. right? And the continent of Corvair has more separate nation states and regions and so on than this has. So, so it's much more stripped down, right? It is. It is. I think. I think where I think the choices that were made that were different that stand out to me are the way that Wildmount decided not to be like here's your sort of default starting point. Like Eberron spends a lot of pages like here's Sharn. Let us tell you a lot about Sharn. This is your starting point in the campaign. Whereas Wildmount is a lot more. No, we're going to give you some adventures and let you just sort of jump in to to starting in that way in these different regions. And I thought that was a, a different way of introducing it that I liked. So anybody else have last thoughts? I think we've heard from everybody but Brandis. Uh, I talked most of the episode, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, super last thought for, for me. I think uh, the biggest inspiration I got from this book was I absolutely want to run a Saltmarsh game set on the Menagerie Ghost. I think that would be like such a good flavor to take Saltmarsh out of the gray, like English countryside and put it on sort of like a bright Mediterranean vibe would be awesome. I can see that. Absolutely. All right, then. I think we're going to go ahead and call that the end of the episode. It's going to be a long episode, but... I think it'll be a fun one. And we'd like to say thank you to everyone who listened through and our listeners who support us by shopping at Amazon or DMs Guild through the links at thetomeshow.com 
or become patrons at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. We also want to thank our guest, Brandis. Where can folks find you? I write for Tribality.com. I'm on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. And I write my own blog, www.brandisdaughter.com. I also have a Patreon, Brandisdaughter. Awesome. Ishmael? Uh, I can be found on Twitter primarily under uh, King Lorathorn or Elven Wizard King, if that's easier to spell, which it certainly is. But also, um, but also uh, a lot of my products that I write for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons and such can be found on DriveThruRPG uh, under my name, Ismael Alvarez, or... Uh, games if that's easier for you to spell which it probably is and Aaron uh, so you can hit me up on Twitter at, at tbonedug t-b-o-n-e underscore d-o-o-g or uh, if you like anime and uh, 8-bit chiptune musics I do a lot of uh, covers on my YouTube channel just my name Aaron Good nice all right. If you want to get a hold of us on the show, you can email the Tome Show at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Squatch, S Q U A C H. You can find Tracy on Twitter. She is at Sarah Dark Magic. That's Sarah with an H and then dark like dark and magic like magic. Uh, and you can also tweet the show. It is at the Tome Show. And that's episode 338, where we used a new form of magic to harness the power of the possible and meet ourselves from other timelines, as we reviewed the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount in this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The I'm not a wall.